Before I say anything, I would like to thank my mother, Mary, and my father, George, for inspiring both my writing talent and the furious anger it took to type every word of this forum on a tablet touchscreen after my previous version of the talk was deemed an incoherent mess. Last night. You are the sun that burns my nose and warms my heart. You are the clouds that snow on my fruit blossoms and water my wheat crop. The United States presidential election of 2016, like all presidential elections since VJ Day made our little New Mexico cul-de-sac famous, shall be remembered for reasons both tragic and farcical. It was the first time a celebrity has ever gained access to nuclear weapons from a democratic election. The first time nine figures of campaign donations have consistently been a net negative to its recipients. The first time globalization has been rejected at the federal level since the fall of the access. But if it's remembered for reasons people wish were true, rather than reasons reflecting reality, the only time its outcome shall deviate from what we saw last November shall be for outcomes even worse. I'm reminded of a joke I heard at a Wade Wheeler sermon many years ago. How do you tell the difference between a liberal and a conservative? Easy. Watch a man drowning 50 feet offshore. The conservative will throw out 25 feet of rope and shout, swim for it. The liberal will toss out 50 feet of rope, drop his own end, and go off to do another good deed. Reverend Wade was quite encouraged by the joke. Both sides threw out rope. But I've observed a new phenomenon in recent times, and I've written my own joke for it. How do you tell the difference between an alt-writer and a social justice warrior? Easy. Watch a man drowning, 50 feet offshore. An alt-writer will refuse to toss the rope outright. They can't afford to waste precious rope on an outsider who will never be capable of learning to swim. A social justice warrior will also refuse to toss the rope. The white supremacist patriarchy has taken enough from them over the years, and sacrificing something of theirs to a man occupying a higher institutional privilege than their own would be tantamount to the oppression of women and people of color. Like Reverend Wheeler, I also have a caveat. The alt-rider will toss the rope to the drowning man once the drowner promises both to work on the ship and to toss the least popular crewman to the sharks in his place. The social justice warrior will double-check the drowner to see if they're of color, female, non-cis-hetero, or of a minority religious group before tossing the straightest, whitest, heteronormativist crewman, and here I emphasize man in the modern, non-gender-neutral sense of the term, overboard in the drowner's place. The liberalism of our forefathers, both religious and national, that took us from superstition and feudalism to sophistication and freedom has become something the modern world has less and less use for. It cries for assimilation at the expense of identity. It gives too little power to our protectors. It allows behavior offensive to the sensibilities to avoid being shut down. And these issues, though they paint different pictures in the minds of the left and right wings, cry out for a final solution to the liberalism question. This has become so appealing that both Democrats and Republicans elected their party's least liberal candidates ever, for the nominations last year. I can already feel protests to that remark, but I stand by it. The reproductive organs, skin color, and sexual identities of someone who has no respect for freedom of expression, conscience, or the press 
does not make, said somebody, a liberal except in the anemic minds of those who have never bothered learning why liberalism actually attracted the aforementioned. But even as I sound the alarm, I'm not here to be hopeless. Not only have I isolated what I see as the four problems most responsible for the success of Trumpism, respectively, the opinion corridor, the asphyxiation of independent activism, identity politics, and reflexive accommodations to thugs and bullies, but solutions to each of those problems that anyone who listens can take up any time. From my many years here, I know I'm in the company of talented listeners. The opinion corridor is a term originating in Sweden. It refers to the window of acceptable opinions and expressions for public discourse. I feel this is a more precise, less loaded, and more useful term than political correctness because it gives a name to the principle behind PC observance. We want our trains to stay on the tracks, and nobody likes a blasphemer. At least that's how the world works most of the time. Here's what happens when the train takes the wrong switch. The passengers eventually start noticing, but no one speaks up, since they assume the captain knows what he's doing. There's grumbling, groaning, but if the captain finds a way to course correct, even the unhappy passengers won't be too big a problem. The opinion corridor keeps people from disrupting the peace and quiet we all enjoy every time what we want deviates from what we get. But when the train keeps rolling the wrong way for long enough, and the captain either dismisses every complaint or responds with hostility, the passengers not only prepare mutiny, but will rally to whoever complains the loudest, meanest, and earliest about the problem the moment enough of them finally lose patience. Even if their new leader has no qualifications captaining anything, nor understanding of how trains work, the current captain's deliberate refutation of reality has both poisoned the well for every decision they previously supported, and immuted bloodlust in the passengers that compromises their judgment. The opinion corridor turns from an umbrella into a noose, all because of the cowardice and pride of those who hold their hands at the controls. There are many issues that Donald Trump has 180 from the post-Cold War consensus on, but the general population doesn't respect the consensi apostles and acolytes when they treat anyone who complains about their livelihoods evisceration at the hands of Chinese and Indian factory owners who run glorified slave labor camps that put out crappy versions of the products we used to make for a lower cost than we can ever compete with, like a gang of crossburners. The general population will never take seriously people who refuse to use the words such as Islamic terrorism to people who name their countries they take over after the word Islam any more than they'd respect a Cold War figure who refused to use the word socialist to refer to the United Soviet Socialist Republic. Offensiveness is no excuse to ignore reality. It's why so many of history's visionaries are referred to in modern times as unelectable. Ken Burns lamented this as the fate of the Roosevelts on The Daily Show in 2014, and within just two years, America became so fed up with the milquetoast nature of our system, we elected our most offensive specimen because of his vulgarity, not in spite of it. Sadly, Donald Trump holds just as much contempt for reality as he does for decent haircuts, but that doesn't mean the virtues of offensiveness be written off. Don't let the opinion corridor shackle you against expressing opinions that might or will offend not just those who lived in Eisenhower's America, but America now. You don't want to wait until the man in the straitjacket brings up the train captain's incompetence right as the passengers are eyeing their sharp objects. 
And again, my train metaphor itself is also flawed in principle. A government based on individual liberties should not put such rigidity upon any of our law-abiding citizens. And the ease with which we see otherwise just shows how far we've slipped away from the nation that gave birth to the Homestead Act. Imagine anyone in a position of power in this country today proposing that anybody who takes a previously abandoned building or tract and spends five years turning it into something productive and habitable gets to keep the rights to said property for the rest of their life. They'd be laughed out of the dome. This underscores a serious problem in many areas of life, none more so than the modern Democratic Party's hostility to independent activism. It's hard to imagine now, but Americans for Prosperity and other Tea Party groups did not invent social media bottom-up political organization. OFA, Organizing for America, back when the O stood for Obama rather than organizing, managed to take an Illinois senator who yet to finish his first term and gave him victory over a better-known, better-funded, better-connected adversary with social media and community action that functioned independent of a political party. Indeed, the objective was to hijack a political party before they could steer their ship into what looked like an iceberg and make a move for friendlier waters. They were right. Hillary Clinton has always been a weak candidate and capable not only of keeping her hand out of the cookie jar, but of even shooing away her brothers before they can ruin a diplomatic relation or two while they stuff their own hands inside. I'm confident she would have lost in 08 just as badly as she lost now, especially since John McCain wouldn't have felt the need to woo her disgruntled pumas by nominating Dan Quayle's long-lost daughter in an act of identopolitical cynicism worthy of our own times. Where was this force when the Tea Party was taking out the Democrats' legislative majority like they were clay pigeons? Smothered in the crib. In the name of preemptive reconciliation with the Democrats' power brokers, against the counsel of his closest advisors, Barack Obama allowed his campaign operation to be absorbed by the DNC upon his election, where they could safely throttle the operation while it slept. In less than a year... The operation's castration was so complete, even Massachusetts Senate seat, formerly held by Ted Kennedy, was lost by a mere 100,000 votes. Over three-quarters of a million Massachusetts Obama voters stayed home. A year after that, the Democrats lost the legislature and have never come close to regaining it since. It's no mystery to anyone who knows these facts why the Koch brothers have never folded the AFP into the RNC. No political advocacy group that joins up with a political party will ever be allowed to pressure their host for anything, and the parties they're not absorbed into were busy fighting their host anyway. Obsession with compliance and control led the Democrats to execute their very cause of their greatest victory since 1933. However, things have improved since 2008. Communications technology has granted power to the everyman even Gene Roddenberry never envisioned. The Million Man March, itself a reaction to the 94 congressional elections, took place nearly a year after its inspiration. The Women's March of this year, inspired by Trump's election, took place the day of Trump's inauguration, had just as many protesters in D.C. alone as the Million Man March of 95, plus ten times as many protesters joining worldwide, all without the DNC. If that power can be organized and harnessed, independent of an established political party, and given a purpose coupled with regular missions for the followers, the dreams of the OFA that could have been, can be.
But are those dreams my own? I'm a straight, white, American male, between one and three score years old. Since President Jackson's time, things have been going well for us, even when we weren't property owners. In fact, it's only been recently that things have been going downhill for us, not only for the long term, but with no meaningful hope of an upswing. I have almost no chance of ever earning as much money as my father, or even his father, and my chances even for comparable benefits are non-existent. They both got pensions. I'm happy just having a 401k. Their children were raised by housewives no nanny or daycare shall ever compare to using a single salary. I'm struggling to find a paycheck that takes care of one person. Opportunities for upward mobility and long-term job security used to exist everywhere. Now we're just happy to have them at Lanel. I'm one of the lucky ones, not because of who I was born as, but because of where I live. I can't hope to take care of a wife for at least five years, let alone a family. And I'm supposed to sacrifice more so I can enjoy less? Also, in the name of feminism and globalization, my wife and family can also sacrifice more to enjoy less? The end of history looks more like a circular firing squad in the family. I'd be crazy not to find whoever came up with this and toss them into the rustiest machine of an abandoned factory in Flint. Now I know what you're thinking. Jordy, this is insane. What about all of the oppression that women and minorities have endured over the years? How dare you be so selfish as to not vote for their interests? What are you, a brown shirt? And all that's important, but it doesn't change facts. I'm not a woman. I'm not a minority. And if someone tells me my only chance for atonement of the circumstances of my birth is to bend over and never straighten my spine for the rest of my life, I'll toss them off the ski lift on principle. This is where you get into the real danger of identity politics. Many have claimed that the election of Trump was its refutation, but I see it as its success. Every group aside from straight white males in America has not only been encouraged to vote and support policies and practices based on their not being straight white males, but to damn the consequences. They become the last acceptable bad guys in everything from politics to comic books, to TV, to video games, to Hollywood movies. It was and is an obvious double standard, and its only resolutions were either the abandonment of identity politics for a return to politics for everybody, or for straight white males to form their own bloc based on their own interests. They chose the latter. Some of you might remember by now that straight white women also supported Trump by a plurality. How can I call this a success for identity politics when straight white women voted against their own interests? But answer me this. If it's true that men find doormats less desirable than women with backbones, why would women find any appeal in men who feel the need to castrate themselves every morning to keep themselves acceptable allies? We've become unable to think of societal advancement as anything other than a zero-sum gain. This is the complete opposite of both liberal philosophy and liberal religion, and the only reason it gained any traction at all was so cynical figures like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton could guilt and terrify people into unconditional support based on demographics rather than ideas. We as a people were cheap and shallow in falling for it, and those who call themselves liberals in particular would do well to remember the essential. 
I wish I could say the aforementioned covered enough. Indeed, the next point was probably least meaningful of the four to the election, given how little importance the average American voter places on foreign policy. But it bears bringing up anyway for the moral price we paid because of it. The Obama administration, for all the inspiration of breaking the color barrier, tarnished its legacy internationally and our country's honor to the point where I regret ever voting for Barack Obama at all. On almost every occasion where a tyrant used his power to bully and brutalize, the Obama administration not only stood aside, but rewarded the acts of their enemies more than their allies. The Green Revolution in Iran was left in the lurch while clerical sociopaths were rewarded for their nuclear program cheats with lifted sanctions. Military commitments were tossed in the dumpster for short-term political points, even as the very same criminals responsible for Hussein's atrocities were bringing forth a regime of evil comparable to the Third Reich. Twice, our ally in the office of the Egyptian presidency was abandoned, while Vladimir Putin bombed civilians indiscriminately to protect a giraffe-necked monster who tended his military base. Even the mere setup of an active measures counter-propaganda apparatus, similar in nature to what was done for the KGB propaganda during the Reagan administration, was kiboshed repeatedly by Obama himself under the fear of straining relations with a man who's poisoned his critics with polonium on NATO soil and leaked thousands of embarrassing documents to damage the reputation and electoral chances of Obama's own party. Reconciliation to those neither repentant nor even changing their behavior that brought about sour relations in the first place is an act that implies what should be incompatible levels of naivete and cynicism not only are both present, but can get along better than most brothers within the same soul. What it shall never be is kindness nor reason. What it shall never be is a victory against imperialism. Genocidal expansionism for men who wish, among many other nightmares, that the Indonesians could have succeeded in massacring every last ungrateful infidel in East Timor before the Vimy scum had the chance to secede is as pure as imperialism gets and only the irredeemably foolish could ever think otherwise. If standing up to the thuggish and the cruel ends in violence, death, and execution, it's still no different than the outcome of letting them have their way. But even for the fundamentalist pacifists, standing up has many options. In Europe, within the last year, the continent has gone from the German arrest of a man for reading an obscene poem insulting the visiting Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, as well as the arrest of the author of the poem, for good measure, to the Netherlands' refusal to allow this megalomaniac or his cronies to hold political rallies in their country for a referendum to increase his powers and to get votes from children and grandchildren of Turkish citizens who've never been to and couldn't live in Turkey for a single day, but see racism and Islamism as protective forces for their nation, the same way certain demented individuals in South Korea believe that Juche ideology makes the North more authentically Korean. No one died. Only a few people were hurt with mostly superficial injuries from riot disbursement, and the incumbent Dutch government deflated the popularity of nationalist challenger Gerard Wilders to the point where his party dropped from polling in lead to a three-way tie for second and no hope for coalition. Countries across Europe have similarly told President Erdogan exactly which part of his body he can hold his rallies and how far away him and his minions have to be from a European venue before doing so. 
It warms my heart just thinking about what other actions this could inspire. Trump will not be an answer to standing up to bullies. He himself has expressed repeated admiration for Assad, Gaddafi, Hussein, Putin, and Deng Xiaoping's Tiananmen crackdown of 89. He's cruel, greedy, cynical, and exceptionally stupid. But joining up with thugs and bullies shall always be a more appealing option than letting them have their way, even when you have power far beyond their own. Those who were once friends and followers will actively abandon those who take the latter option and rewards for cruelty, while the law-abiders are the only ones enduring punishment, shall only embolden the thuggish to accelerate their evil. It's time for those who call themselves liberals to remember what courage looks like. It's time for Americans to stop feeling ashamed for having standards. It's time to care less about what will make for momentary popularity and more for what will make people look back after we're dead and shed tears of gratitude. It's time to be unelectable. It's time to be brave. It's time to be independent. It's time to tell the truth. Thank you. I guess I went a little fast. We have plenty of time for questions. Hello, hello. Yes, John? Uh, yes, you did indeed go too fast, and I didn't quite understand what you were telling about the Netherlands. But uh, I want to emphasize the problem there is that the, the Muslims who moved in are trying to create a separate country. They don't want to mix with the, with the European people. They want to have their own little enclave which they will manage with a Islamic law with a cleric as, as the head. And th that doesn't sit well with the, with the Dutch people. They would be happily accept those who wish to mix with them to become citizens of their country, but they object to a separate country being formed. They shouldn't accept it. It's completely ridiculous that they want to have some sort of demented, bastardized version of Ottoman law as their own rules when they live in a country that became prosperous and livable because is secular because of the Protestant Revolution and Reformation. And they're absolutely right for not tolerating all that sanctimonious garbage about oppression of people of color, especially since Turkish people are the whitest Muslims in the entire universe. There are more people in Turkey who have red hair and green eyes than in Ireland. It's completely absurd. Not to mention, they have nuclear weapons over in their country, our nuclear weapons to be sure. But this is a country that is supposed to be modern, technology advanced, civilized. They certainly have the weapons to back it up. And they want this medievalist, demented nonsense 
to be their rules. It's horrible, and it shouldn't be tolerated by anybody. And the fact that so many have said, well, we got to let those people have their own rules, is part of the reason why there are fewer and fewer people who take liberalism seriously nowadays. Thank you very much, John. Next. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I take we it have no people objection. like that in the United States. I'm told that 20% of the American population denies that we could possibly have gone to the moon because that's a heavenly body, and you know, everyone knows you can't get to heaven in a rocket ship. And the same fraction who believe that Earth goes, the sun goes around the earth and is pushed by a gang of angels. Well, certain polls for me are a little hard to digest since uh, no matter what kind of ridiculous question you put on a poll, it seems like there will always be someone who answers to either its affirmation or negation. But people like the Duggard family should not be dictating our country's laws anymore. And Erdogan should be setting up his tin pot dictatorship down in Anatolia. And the big difference though, that I see is that people justifiably don't feel guilty for standing up to folks like the Duggards when they spout nonsense. Whereas there is a lot of guilt for people who are seen as being of some sort of lower social caste or level of privilege and standing up to them no matter what sort of heinous garbage they promote, it's why you saw so many people completely ignore Osama bin Laden's enthusiastic support of the massacre of the people of East Timor for being degenerate heathens who were grateful for even having the luxury of living at all on their island. Anybody else? Even people outside in the forum? How about you, Elroy? Or how about you, Mike? Uh, uh, actually, Mike, in particular, I want to apologize. I didn't get to the video you linked inside of my forum. I had so much to cover, and I realized that if I were to add video clips to what I had, it would already take way too long because I'd written up third, you know. Any amount of time that I could get this thing out, it was between 20 and 30 minutes, and I realized by the time I have a video clip or slides in, I'd be running out of time for questions. So for that, I do indeed apologize. Yes, Mrs. Gessler? I have to apologize. I had something earlier, so I came in late, so I probably missed a big part of what you were talking about. No but problem. First this of wasn't all, advertised. <laughs> yeah, but first of all, thank you so much. I mean, your breadth of uh, study, you know, in these areas is um, has impressed me. So thank you. Um, but I wanted to add a little bit because I had lived in Norway about uh, the Muslim immigration there. You know, from different actually from way different countries. And I have to say, there is just, for us, for me to characterize those Muslims there under one banner is just impossible because there were Muslims from Iran and Iraq who were coming from totally, they, they were just, they were people who were just uh, in shock because they said, my, my country is broken and will never be fixed. They were truly sad and they had immigrated to Norway to find a peaceful place to live. 
Then there were people from Indonesia and people from Somalia and people. So these people have just were from incredibly different cultures. So the problem in Norway about assimilating Muslims is that they're just not one group. And you had a group that still wanted their women to wear burqas and, you know, be very cloistered. And, and But then there was, I mean, they have some wonderful lawmakers who have been elected into office on a national level who are Muslim, who are very willing to be part of the, you know, the national dialogue on how to run a nation, and they're not pushing for any one religion. So I just wanted to add that, that there's just... This, to, to characterize Muslims as a group is just um, difficult because there's just so many different ways of looking at it, and there are some very liberal Muslims. Well, that wasn't my intention any more than it's my intention to say that everybody in South Korea possesses a mentality that even though the people who run the North are monsters, at least they're more authentically Korean. That is only a small minority with both groups. The problem that I see we're running into, and this is something, uh, they have this in Norway too. I double-checked on it. It's a neologism. Uh, the opinion corridor, which I brought up before you came in, they use the term in Sweden and in Norway to refer to the acceptable uh, topics for public discourse to the point where they go beyond something that and you know would either reflect reality or would even be part of a popular opinion the problem that we're seeing now is people are afraid to bring up any sort of counterpoint at all they've gone too far in one direction as opposed to uh, a nat sock like Steve Bannon who is happily willing to side with a man who has allowed Sharia law and secret police into a fiefdom state of his own country, like Vladimir Putin, as long as it means stopping those Muslims. Because, you know, putting Sharia law in your country, that's a guy who's going to stop Muslims. And we can't be either side. We have to be honest about the fact that Muslims are people just like us, they have a wide breadth of political opinions, but it would be completely ridiculous to ignore the fact that there are some not only seriously demented figures in the modern Muslim world, just there, as there are some seriously demented figures in modern Christianity, but said demented figures have a very disturbing amount of power over the Muslim world and even over our world. TV episodes, cartoons in the United States that aired in the 1990s have since been removed from circulation because they featured an image of Muhammad as a superhero. Fighting with Jesus and Buddha. Uh, and we can't pretend that that was done for any kind of altruistic reason. It was done because demented sociopaths threatened to blow people up and murder people, all because of a showing of a cartoon. We can't pretend that any more than we can pretend that everything about Christianity is hunky-dory or that there aren't some seriously messed up Buddhists in Burma who will happily tear your guts out if you don't call the country Myanmar.
because calling it Burma is not properly Burmese and Buddhist enough. Because the more we pretend otherwise, the less we're taken seriously by the time we have to discuss points that are valid. And none of this should be a contradiction, and what worries me is that more of us are seeing it as that way. And I don't think we need to. Anybody else? All right, let's thank Jordy. This is a great talk. I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank James for giving me this opportunity to have this forum. I'd like to thank uh, Mom and Dad for listening to me give this forum three previous times before I did it right now and for inspiring the new creative direction that I took with it. I'd like to thank Mike for his video suggestions when this was just a budding idea. I would like to thank Alroy for very frequently discussing politics with me. I would like to thank Mrs. Gissler for thinking so highly of the work that I put into this presentation and for being willing to ask me a difficult question. I would like to thank John for asking two questions. And even though I didn't get to bring him up in the forum, I'd like to thank my Uncle Bill in Iowa for having a 50-minute phone conversation with me a couple of days ago about what he observed in the Trumpian phenomenon in Iowa. The thing that surprised me was he did not see a great deal of apathy. He saw people who were very energized, and in fact, during the first round of elections, they did not vote for Trump for the nomination. And keep in mind, this is a state that is virtually alone in voting for Michael Dukakis, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. He's lived there for 40 years. He has seen an awful lot probably more than any human being should ever see about politics. But I would like to thank him very much for having a conversation with me. It meant an awful lot. I'm disappointed that I didn't get to bring it up in the forum, but I'm glad I got to bring it up now. Thank you also very, very much for coming. Thank you very much, Lou and March. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> I think that's everybody except for you. I don't think I know your name. Sarah, thank you. Thank you, one last, to Mr. Bonneau for handling the audio. Bye-bye. <laughs> hey, one of the advantages of a small crowd, you get to thank everybody.